It's a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, this church means a great deal to Rosabelle and me. When uh, we arrived here in 1993, it was, for me, it was like coming home. I had attended here as a preschooler and, uh, and my, my, our roots run pretty, pretty deep here. I also want to affirm you for all the wonderful work you've done on your building. It's really, really quite beautiful. Many of you will know, and some of you won't, that it was over 70 years ago that uh, Maple Ridge Baptist Church, uh, what the, the old name of this church, uh, moved from uh, Dudney and the entrance to the cemetery to this corner, just right over here, um, and uh, built their first, their, their second building here. Uh, and then about 40 years ago, this building was built. Uh, about 20 years ago, while I was a pastor here, uh, we also did some sprucing up of this building. We completed the basement and the uh, balcony and the, and the foyer, the, um, the lobby. Uh, we did some seismic upgrade stuff and uh, tried to make the building look beautiful. And now you've done it again. And good, good for you. It's certainly my prayer uh, that um, this building will be wonderfully used of God to uh, bless people for a good long time to come, to be a blessing to your community. You know, when I asked God if I should accept Pastor Jonathan's invitation to come here and speak, um, I also asked him if I were to come, what, um, what we should talk about, what he wanted us to hear from him. And I believe he directed me to accept and to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is in fact a passage about building, but not a physical building. It points us beyond the physical building to the gathering of people. And I, I hope when we're done here this morning for, with, from uh, our time in 1 Corinthians 3, that uh, you'll be all the more grateful for the physical space in which you get to be God's building. Some years ago, family counselor and author Gary Smalley was making a series of films. And in one of those films, uh, he uh, wanted to inspire husbands and wives to uh, honor one another, to feel how privileged they were to live out their lives together, not to take each other for granted, etc. And in the midst of his talk, he, he, uh, he passed around an old violin which, he, which they were mildly interested in, of course. But then he told them that it was a Stradivarius, and I think that indeed it was. Now, you may know that um, uh, the Stradivarius family in the 1700s, uh, 17th and 18th centuries, actually, uh, made violins, which in recent times have sold for mega bucks. In fact, in 2011, the Lady Blunt violin, which uh, dates back to 1721 uh, and was in pristine condition and was owned by the, um, let's see, the granddaughter, Lord Byron's granddaughter, Lady Anne Blunt. Uh, anyway, that violin sold uh, in 2011 for um, $15.9 million dollars. <coughs> Thankfully, the proceeds of that sale went to help uh, the folks who were suffering in Japan from the earthquake and tsunami. So how do you think Gary Smalley's studio audience felt when they realized that the violin they were holding in their hands one after another was a real, was a Stradivarius? Well, they, they reacted as Gary Smalley hoped they would. 
there was this collective gasp. <gasps> they couldn't believe that they were privileged to hold this violin. And this is how the Apostle Paul wants us to feel as he reminds us who we are as a church. <clears throat> this is how the Holy Spirit wants you here at Ridge Church this morning to feel as the Holy Spirit reminds you who you are. Now, 1 Corinthians 3 hinges in verse 9, the first nine verses, actually, of the chapter. Uh, Paul is using a metaphor around farming. <clears throat> and um, he's telling them that he and Apollos and Cephas, in other words, the Apostle Peter, were like farmers on the same crew. And so he's using this metaphor of the church as God's field. And then in, uh, and he's chiding them for the conflicts among them and telling them they need to see each other as co-workers. They need to see these leaders as co-workers, not competitors. And then right there in the midst of verse 9, he switches the metaphor. In the last two verses, he says he goes from God's field to God's building. And he paints three pictures that I hope that we can see with clarity this morning. The first is God's building. The second is, um, <clears throat> or rather, the first is temple. The second is temple builders. And the third is temple vandals. I'm going to read this passage for us. And if you have a, a hard copy Bible or the Bible on a device this morning, I really encourage you to look it up. Some of it will be on the screen, but it's always good to see it in our own hands. And so let's imagine that we are this church that has received uh, a letter from our founder, the Apostle Paul. And we've never heard this, read this letter before, but I have been asked by you to read it to us as a congregation this morning. And so I'm doing so. First Corinthians chapter three, beginning with verse nine. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, capital D, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness, and again... The Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more, no more boasting about human leaders, 
all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. <clears throat> first Corinthians three. The first picture that we want to notice then is the picture of a temple. Verse nine, we are God's workers in God's service. You are God's field. And then the switch, God's building. Remember, he is speaking to a local church and telling them that they are God's building. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, telling us that we are God's building. What sort of building? Verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Don't you know that? <laughs> is a very pointed question. Paul is passionate in Corinthians. And this is the first of 10 times in this letter where in this sort of pointed way, he asks them, don't they know something that they ought to know? He's asking in essence, don't you know who you are? You as a local church, he's saying to them, are nothing less than God's sanctuary. In the person of the Holy Spirit, God dwells in your assembled presence. He is in your midst. This is not about a physical meeting place, of course. It is the congregation assembled together that is God's sanctuary. Now, Paul has a choice of several words that he could use here for temple. He could have used a word that refers to the whole temple complex. In the Old Testament, they had a tent temple that was called the tabernacle. It had a large outer court where people could gather. And then there was a much smaller inner building, inner tent that was itself divided in two sections. Two thirds of it was the holy place where the priests did their ministrations. And one third was the most holy place, the holy of holies, which was seen as the place where God himself was at, was present. This is the word that Paul uses. It is the word sanctuary, this inner temple where God is present. The holy of holies was a place where no one could go ever because God's presence was there, except for the high priest who was duty bound to go there one day a year on the day of atonement. And he brought the blood of atonement and poured it on the mercy seat, that blood symbolizing the blood of Jesus that later would be um, shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So does it blow your mind that now that Jesus has offered himself to God as our atoning sacrifice, we are not only able to enter the sanctuary. We are the sanctuary. God dwells in you as a church, as you assemble together. In case we didn't get it, look at verse 17. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Your church is not this beautiful building. The physical building is simply the place where the church assembles. 
this room where we worship on Sunday morning is not the sanctuary as it's called in so many churches. Your sacred assembly is the holy of holy sanctuary in which God spirit dwells. When we grasp this reality, we gasp in a holding a Stradivarius moment. <gasps> Rich Church is diverse in numerous ways, younger folks, older, male, female, new Christians, longtime Christians, people holding this opinion and people holding that opinion, diverse in so many ways, but together you are God's sanctuary. He dwells among you. Maybe like Moses, we should be taking off our shoes because the place where we stand is holy ground. How staggering, how sobering. Yes, how reassuring it is all at once to know that we are God's temple. The second picture that Paul paints is also powerful. The second picture is that of temple builders. Now you might remember an old story that has been told over again in various forms and it goes something like this. There was a traveler who happened upon a building site and he asked a bricklayer what he was doing. The bricklayer said that he was uh, laying bricks. So he went and asked a second bricklayer what he was doing and he said that he was building a wall. But when he asked a third bricklayer what he was doing, the man paused and with great pride, he said that he was building a cathedral. Dear friends, we are not only God's temple. We are builders of his temple. You are builders of this temple. Can you believe it? Paul says in verses 10 and 11, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. We all know that foundations are tremendously important. They anchor buildings against natural forces like earthquakes and floats and uh, uh, droughts and, and floods and frost heaves and strong wind, etc. Foundations must carry the full load of the weight of a building and everything that is put into it. Foundations, of course, have to differ according to the type of building and the building site. Is, it, is the building site sand or rock or earth? What kind of soil? Paul points out that he laid the only foundation that makes a group of people God's temple. That foundation is Jesus Christ. He laid this foundation by preaching Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Chapter one, verses 23 and 24. Jesus is the only adequate foundation for God's temple because only Jesus through his death and resurrection can reconcile us to God when we place our faith in him. And because of that, only Jesus makes it possible for God to presence himself among us 
and to be and for us to be his temple. Paul was only able to lay such a foundation because of God's grace in his life, he says, to make him wise enough to understand that only Jesus could be such a foundation. But he goes on to say that all churches have more than one, more than one builder, that this church has more than one builder. By the grace God has given me, he says, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care. Paul cautions that all builders must build with care on the foundation of Jesus. Those additional builders are all of us, all of you. And yet it seems to me that we're often unaware of the importance of what we are doing, unaware that we are builders of God's temple. <clears throat> when our boys were small, on a particular day, we have four sons, and at this point they were all preschoolers. Um, Roosevelt was gone at lunchtime and it was up to me to make lunch and I made French toast. And uh, while we were sitting there uh, eating our French toast, our oldest son, just a little guy said, Dad, are you good at making? And uh, so <clears throat> we were actually sitting in our new home, a home that I had built and so as we sat there in this lovely house, I thought he was referring to the house. And I said, uh, yeah, I think I'm pretty good at making. Looking down at his soggy French toast that I'd put too much milk in, <clears throat> he said, Daddy, is this the best you can make? We've all had a chuckle over that conversation many times over the years. You know, looking back, I realize that the most important thing I was making was not a lunch. The most important thing I had made was not a house. The most important thing that I was making in that period of time was I was making men. <laughs> I was showing, providing for, teaching, guiding four little boys to become men. I wasn't just laying bricks or building a wall. I was building a cathedral. When you and I gather as a church, and even when we scatter and live out our lives in various pursuits, do we remember that we are builders of a temple? Because that's who we are and that's what we are doing. We aren't just going to church and singing and listening to a sermon and praying and uh, interacting with a few people after worship. We aren't just greeting people or ushering or leading worship or operating technical equipment or whatever or teaching children. We aren't just telling our friends about Jesus or inviting them to come to church or giving generously from our paycheck. We are building a temple, a sacred assembly, a sacred sanctuary in which God dwells. And it matters that we know this. And it matters that we carefully choose our building materials. Paul speaks of this in verses 12 and 13. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day, again, capital D, will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. We notice those six building materials, gold, silver, costly stones, wood, 
hay straw. The quality of the superstructure of the building of the temple must match the quality of the foundation. These six building materials obviously fit into two categories. And what divides these two categories is not actually how costly the building materials are. We will one day stand before God on that day. And we will watch him evaluate our building efforts. And he will evaluate with fire. God's awesome presence is often described in scripture as fire. You know, Moses burning bush where God appears to Moses in, a, in, a, in flames of fire from a bush that doesn't burn up. And God calls him out of the bush and introduces himself and tells him that he, he should take off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. Or think of Mount Sinai where God established his covenant with Israel. And we read Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. Exodus 19. No wonder we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Our God is a consuming fire. The quality of the building each of us is doing as we build into each other's lives will be shown for what it is in the, by the awesome presence of the God of unfailing love and flawless holiness. His very presence on that day, the day of reckoning, the day of reward, will reveal whether we were, what we built, were building with was merely temporal or whether it was eternal. Some things are eternal. Some things, only a few things, are permanent, permanent and eternal. God's word is eternal. How important it is that we learn it and live it and teach it, treasure it. People are eternal. How important is it then that we build into each other's lives, helping, uh, helping uh, towards life transformation that we might become more like the Lord Jesus Christ? God the Father, obviously, is eternal. How important it is that we love the one who so loved us that he gave his one and only son. The Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. How essential it is that we not only trust him as Lord and Savior, but that we love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and seek to introduce others to him. The Holy Spirit is eternal. How essential it is that we learn to live the lives that God wants us to live empowered by him because only he can help us to live that way when we choose such things as these as our building materials and our interacting with one another the building our building is imperishable and inflammable and yet so many things are just the opposite. They are perishable. They will not stand the test of God's presence on the day when we all stand before him. Social club Christianity is not permanent. You know, we come to church to see our friends. Pseudo tolerance that treats truth as subjective. You know, your truth is just as good as my truth and my truth is just as good as your truth. Whatever, as long as you believe it not permanent. Legalism that sees following Jesus as measuring up to a bunch of rules that we judge each other by. 
not permanent. And yet how tragic that the world often experiences Christians as judgmental and even hateful. Fritting away our lives on ourselves and self-centered living, living apart from God's larger purposes for us, not permanent. In verse 14 and 15, we're challenged with this thought. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. I'm not sure what the rewards will be. God knows, and they will certainly be worth it. But perhaps the reward will be, on, on, in part, knowing that God is pleased with my efforts, although I, I owe it all to him. Anything I am and have, I owe to him and his grace. And yet somehow he is pleased with our efforts as we build into each other's lives. Or perhaps the, the joy is knowing that, in fact, we have made a difference in the lives of others. The Apostle Paul wrote about his friends in Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. What wonderful rewards. On the other hand, building materials that are perishable will result in loss. The incineration of what we've built when it comes in, contra in contact with the presence of God. What a tragedy to realize on that day that we have squandered our lives. What disappointment, even though we as builders who trust in, Je trust in Jesus Christ ourselves escape through the flames. These realizations are both inspiring and sobering. Paul ends this part of his letter with an even more sobering picture. So this morning we've seen God's temple. We've seen the picture of temple builders. But the third picture is sobering. It's temple vandals. Verse 17 is the strongest warning in the New Testament against damaging a local church. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. These are strong words, scary words. Do they make you gasp as they do me? We gasp in horror that such a thing could ever be true of us, that we could vandalize God's temple. The word destroy can be translated defile, corrupt, hurt, violate, spoil, yes, and vandalize. These words bring to mind an incident that occurred in the history of Jerusalem between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Greek king Antiochus IV Epiphanes set up a statue of the mythological god Zeus in God's temple and sacrificed an unclean animal, sacrificed a pig on that temple in Zeus's honor. This was the height of sacrilege for devout worshipers of Yahweh. It provoked a priest in a small town in Judah to mount an insurrection against uh, the occupying forces. His sons became known as the Maccabees. They actually recaptured the temple, rededicated it, 
and eventually won independence from the invaders. To get an inkling of how repugnant what Antiochus had done, how repugnant it was to them, but probably only an inkling. Think of how you felt, how you felt when Putin's forces bombed schools, bombed hospitals, bombed civilian housing, bombed convoys of people seeking to escape the war, bombed a port after promising that he would help get the wheat of the Ukraine out to the world. Desecrating the Old Testament temple was infinitely worse than that because it was blasphemy against God himself. And this is how serious it is to damage, to defile, to corrupt, to hurt, to violate, to spoil, to vandalize this temple of God. The Corinthians, if you read the, this letter up to this point and beyond, the Corinthians were hurting their church by buying into the wisdom of their culture that said that things like status and learning and giftedness and powers of reason and eloquence, these are the things that matter. Having bought into that mindset, they were ruining the church through their jealousy, through their quarreling, through their competitiveness, their party spirit. They were contradicting the very truth of the gospel that says that Jesus makes it possible for us to have an eternal relationship with God whom we love with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we love our neighbor as ourselves. And they were showing that in their, by their behavior to be a lie. We too defile our local church as God's dwelling through buying into the values of this world, through conflict, and by living as though we, our comfort, our preferences, our friendships, our prosperity, our entertainment, we matter more than God and his temple. We are to build God's temple, not to vandalize it. The two final statements in this chapter are a moving climax. The first is a pointed warning. The second is an encouraging reminder. Listen as I read. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. When God says, don't kid yourself, don't, do not deceive yourselves, we should listen carefully. We don't have time to scrutinize each phrase in this paragraph, but let me summarize Paul's point. He's saying that you can deceive yourself into thinking that you're pretty smart and doing things the way you do them is just fine, but you will never be able to outsmart God. And if you are vandalizing his temple by means of your worldly values, your bad attitudes and your misguided words and actions, he knows it is very serious. No more, he says. Cut it out. 
Paul's final words in verses 21 and 20 to 23 are positive and very encouraging. He says, all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Instead of being self-centered, give your head a shake and realize how blessed you are. God has given you his servants to help you find and follow Jesus. Look around you in the church this morning and be grateful for all the people that are pouring good things into your life. God has given you immeasurable blessings in this world. You are so privileged no matter who you are. He is with you every moment of your life. He will be with you in death and anything that ever happens to you and anything that ever will happen to you, he means for your good. Furthermore, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. In short, all the blessings of God and the entire universe belong to his redeemed church. Everything that exists and happens to us, we are to view as for our benefit. It all belongs to us and we all belong to God. What good reason to keep our eyes on God rather than on ourselves, to treasure the privilege of being and building his temple and to avoid anything that hurts it. I always try to put my Sunday sermons into a single, single sentence and this is how I would summarize what Paul, what God is saying to us here, awareness of God's presence in our church moves us to build it, not vandalize it. Awareness of God's presence in our church moves us to build it, not vandalize it. When we are filled with wonder that God is present among us, the way we view and respond to our church is deeply affected. Without this sense of wonder, we are so easily distracted by each other's imperfections. <laughs> and let's acknowledge that we all have imperfections and all churches have imperfections. We're all people in process at different stages of experiencing God's life transforming work in our lives. Whoever we are, it's all too easy to vandalize our church by being critical of others, by, by comparing our church with other churches and our preacher with other preachers by competing to get things the way we want according to our preference, by taking our church lightly, caring little how we participate. You know, we'll participate if we've got nothing better to do or we aren't too tired or it's not raining or it's not snowing or it's not too hot. By playing favorites and, and dividing into cliques, all of these things damage our church. But when we are filled with wonder that God is here, <laughs> we view our church us as people, as a sacred sanctuary. We are excited by the awesome privilege that we get to build God's temple as we point each other to Jesus. We look forward to the day when the owner of the temple returns to inspect our work and he looks into our eyes and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. And we avoid like the plague, like COVID, all attitudes and words and actions that damage our church rather than vandalize our church out of discomfort, out of discontent and a critical spirit. We're filled with gratitude for how blessed we are.
to be part of this assembly. Would you pray with me? Holy God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are astonished that you dwell among us as a church. We confess that we have too often taken our church for granted and even defiled it by our attitudes, words, actions, and neglect. Thank you for your forgiveness. We rededicate ourselves to being a place where you delight to be. We rededicate ourselves to doing our part to build our church as your temple. We humbly ask you to be present among us with life-transforming power. Amen. By the grace God has given to each one of you, may you build wisely on Jesus and for his pleasure. May you build wisely the sanctuary of God's very presence among you. Amen.